0: I just wish that Papa was here right now to see this good crop that we finally got. Man, look at them beans! And look at that corn! And that bitch in watermelon must be low. That corn section freaks me out every time. I always wonder if it's the Tower of Power.
1: It's the uh, only song I've listened to in the past two months. <laughs>
0: This is hell You gotta spend less time staring at and contemplating beans, my friend (laughs) Deaths from opioid abuse were hitting record numbers toward the end of the last decade The crisis had become an epidemic and was devastating, especially in rural communities as manufacturing chased lower wages, workers were abandoned, and in that hopelessness, with no real sense of control over their futures or their present lives, many turned to opioid use today we'll discuss what happens when jobs disappear and they are replaced with opioids and what that means for the po- political views of opioid users and the rural community with returning guest sociologist Peter Eichler who wrote the study labor relations and the overdose crisis in the United States Peter is associate professor in the Department of sociology at the State University of New York College at Old Westbury where his work focuses on labor and labor movements, class and inequality, and political economy. Peter was on our show back in September of 2016 when we spoke with him about his book, Hard Sell, Work and Resistance in Retail Chains. You can hear that interview right now by going to thisishell.com and searching on Peter's last name, Eichler, that's I K E, L. -L 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 I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how were your holidays?
1: That was good. I got a a cookbook called 600 International and Appalachian Southern Recipes uh, in conjunction with the 1982 World's Fair.
0: Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. It is uh, insane. Have you ever seen that book, White Trash Cooking? No. Oh, it's really hot. They show you how to gut a pig in it. It's from like the late 1980s, I think. Uh, you'd re- I think you'd really like it. It has one of those weird spiral bound spines that it's looks like. Mark a mark of
1: quality for a cookbook.
0: Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So my bigger question is what was the gift that your kid got that he has spent the most time with? Uh, probably a toy uh, post office truck. Oh, the really? postal truck, yeah. So he recognizes the post office truck when it pulls up out front, and then and he has a toy that looks like it?
1: Oh, yeah, Mr. Anthony. That's our, post, that's our postal worker. We, oh, we know his name. That's
0: very cool. That's very cool. I do not know my mail carrier's name because it seems to change every day. Some days we don't get mail for five or six days. Then we get three deliveries <laughs> in one day. So I don't know what the hell is going on there. More importantly than anything else, Alex, what's this week's question from Hell?
1: Next week's question is, uh, what are you doing to commemorate Chuck's 25 years of radio service? Chuck's 25
0: years of radio service. I commemorated it by doing something today that I have never done as far as I remember in 25 years of doing this show. I accidentally slept in. My alarms didn't go off. I had three different alarms set in my house. Not one went off Maybe that's how I'm commemorating 25 years I'll start sleeping in by accident The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This is Hell merchandise you want You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to Thisishell.com and clicking on support Where you can see all of the ways you can contribute To completely listener-supported This is Hell Remember, without you we got nothing So thanks to all of you for your support You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell At our Facebook page, facebook.com Slash hell. Uh, slash This Is Hell Radio and, Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter At This Is Hell Radio Or you can email it to either of us At Chuck at this is hell.com Or Alex at this is hell.com, But we must have your answer by the end of today's show When we are announcing this week's winner Following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth During this week's Moment of Truth Jeff looks a war horse in the mouth. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our guest, again, the question is, how should we commemorate Chuck's 25 years of radio service? How should we commemorate Chuck's 25 years of radio service? Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell, and how about that grief we all witnessed yesterday while watching the attempted whatever that was in Washington, D.C., I'll have more to say on that later, I promise. But we first, we have to get caught up on our the guest suggestions that you've been sending us, the topic suggestions you've send, been sending us, the comments you've had on the show, because you are the most important thing about this is hell. You provide the best content, the best guest and topic suggestions. Yesterday, a listener, Teresa, suggested we have a Seattle City Council member Shama Sawant on the show As she has not only made many progressive policy successes uh, Had many progressive policy successes But has been the target of uh, people like Jeff Bezos Who poured millions into her opponent's campaign However, we have a rule that is more a guideline on the show And that is we don't have politicians or business people on the show As they dominate establishment media And far too often guide popular political debate Which limits it to the bottom line in electoral politics And that's a real limitation to political imagination So we asked again, like we did last fall Should we have politicians on the show? When we asked a few months ago We got a resounding response from our listening audience, from you And that answer was no, definitely not We even had people just sending in responses that just said no With 75 O's in it So Adam wrote to us immediately after yesterday's show saying, hey, Chuck, in responding to a listener who suggested Shama Sawant as a guest, you asked, should we have as guests on the show elected politicians who are clearly not members of the two dominant political parties here in the United States? Adam writes, I'd say rarely. This is not to suggest that there aren't terrific leftists like Councilwoman Sawant in power. There are many to be found even within the hell world of the Democratic Party. Rashida Tlaib, Cory Bush come to mind in the House. And at the municipal level, there's people like Chokwe Antar Lumumba in Jackson, Mississippi, who I'd love to have on the show. Nithya Rahman in L.A. and your own alderwoman Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez in Chicago But we shouldn't feed into the myth that Dominates American politics, the myth that If we want something better, we should Look to our elected officials The decent stuff we do have in government is because Of movements, end Of story, I gotta kind of agree With you there, Adam That being said, please do have on The leaders and spokespeople for Groups that are busting their asses To get these folks elected as Vehicles for leftist agendas Get a guest from Socialist Alternative, which Shama Sawant belongs to, and the uh, letter writer Teresa was a member is a member of as well. Get a guest from Justice Democrats. Get a guest from DSA. Get guests from the PSL, the Movement for a People's Party, the Labour Party, the Green Party, and the Peace and Freedom Party. They won't be academics or journalists, but I bet we'll learn something worthwhile. Thanks, Adam. One. Yeah, The only issue there is with the Green Party There's like 11 Green Parties I think I remember we were having that difficulty In the late 1990s early 2000s Trying to talk to somebody from the Green Party And we had people from the Illinois Green Party Saying that they were the real Green Party Then we had these other people from the National Green Party Saying that they were the real Green Party So there was already a factionalization within the Green Party So yeah Anyway Adam says No to elected officials essentially But yes to the groups of organizers That may be behind such candidates And that's interesting Because the more fascinating part To me at least Is the organizing the ideas That may guide a movement Rather than what any particular politician And their agenda is So thanks Adam That's a very nuanced response And uh, something I had not considered We also got an email from Tove Who writes Hi Chuck This is officially the first fan mail of my life My name is Tove I came to Sweden from Poland To study human ecology last fall But get this, Alex Andreas Malm decided to screw me over And go on a parental leave Instead of teaching me anything At some point of my social isolation despair And distance learning struggle I discovered your show And it's become a significant bright point of 2020 After I moved North Yes, Poland to Sweden, that's north Now I'm trying to find my way Towards radical ecological politics And social sciences in one of the most Boring countries on earth Well, I'm looking forward To actually visiting that most Boring country on earth in 2022 When I'll be going there to celebrate My, what would be my father-in-law's 80th birthday My classes have not been terribly Time-consuming so far, and since there Are no public events, nothing's really Happening, so I'm not really overwhelmed With work right now If there's anything to be done from a distance For this is hell, I would love to do some volunteering Took me a while to actually sit And write this email, I promise it's not a New Year's resolution Also, I honestly admire your English Proficiency But (laughs) This is a big but A piece of constructive, destructive criticism there You absolutely butcher everything That is, I feel, any other language Here's a site with people pronouncing things in their languages Forvo.com F-O-R-V-O.com Sadly, no one is paying me for this advertisement All the best, Tove Yeah, Tove, I used to be better at foreign language pronunciation I have no idea what happened I think I just got lazy. My apologies, but that is so cool that you went to Sweden to learn under Andreas Malm, who will be on our show next week to discuss his new book on how to blow up a pipeline. And if our FBI file isn't thick enough already, that should double its size. Thanks, Tove, for reaching out, and we will definitely be contacting you about contributing to This as Hell. And remember... If there are any of you who would like to be a board operator here in person on This Is Hell or who would like to help us out remotely, all you have to do is email us at chuckitthisishell.com, and we'll get back in touch with you as soon as possible. Coming up, the impact of the opioid crisis on labor relations and more. We'll have we we'll also have Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff looks a war horse in the mouth. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is... How should we commemorate Chuck's 25 years of radio service? How should we commemorate Chuck's 25 years of radio service? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins. <clears throat> your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your response. By the end of today's show, live from the Nightmare of Want, This is how the opioid crisis, as we all know, has been devastating. Record levels of death from overdoses were being recorded throughout the latter half of the past decade. Communities already damaged by massive manufacturing job loss were now confronting another disaster, drug abuse. So what happens when jobs are replaced with drugs, and how might that affect Your political worldview returning to This Is Hell to help us understand sociologist Peter Eichler wrote the study Labor Relations and the Overdose Crisis in the United States. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Peter.
2: Hey, Chuck. It's great to be here again.
0: First of all, I want to thank you for rescheduling with us twice. I got vertigo, then I got back spasms, and then I ran out of excuses for rescheduling, Peter. (laughs)
2: <laughs>
0: Peter was on our show back in September of 2016 when we spoke with him about his book Hard Sell, Work and Resistance in Retail Chains. You can hear that interview right now by going to thisishell.com and searching on Peter's last name, Eichler, that's I-K-E-L-E-R. Peter is associate professor in the Department of Sociology at SUNY College at Old Westbury. You start by writing how deaths by drug overdose in the United States quadrupled in less than 20 years to reach a record level in 2017, 70,237 deaths, topping annual deaths by motor vehicles, suicide, gun violence, chronic kidney disease overdose mortality even surpassed by the annual toll from hiv aids at its peak despite a dip to sixty-seven thousand in 2018 overdose deaths remain a leading cause of mortality in the united states much of this is due to expanding use of opioids both prescription and non-prescription and the spread of potent synthetics like fentanyl which a friend of mine actually passed away from but deaths from non-opioids have also increased since 2013 the u.s is thus in the grips of an opioid-led multi-drug overdose epidemic that has played a major role in reversing life expectancy. Opioid overdoses are so common, they're actually having an impact on overall life expectancy. Peter, do we have any idea of the impact of isolation due to COVID on opioid use? Because of its adverse effects on mental health, COVID-19, I would assume that this might lead to more uh, opioid use. Do we have any understanding if the coronavirus pandemic has had any impact on those numbers?
2: Yeah, it's a great great question, Chuck. We, we do, and unfortunately, it's not good. It's sort of what we would expect. Um, so the numbers you just talked about, things went to a peak in 2017. It took a slight dip, the overdose uh, death toll in 2018, and then they came right back up in 2019. And that's even before COVID hit, right? So the calendar year 2019 actually topped the 2017 rate by a, a few hundred. Um, and then there's some preliminary uh, releases from the CDC was like up through May, like the first few months of the of the pandemic, um, that showed a huge boost. Uh, it's still it's not like confirmed final data, but it's from you know a reputable source uh, that seemed to say you know there was another massive boost in the first few months um, of the coronavirus pandemic. So it you know it seems to reason that this isolation and fear and anxiety. That we're all experiencing due to the pandemic has also spurred on the the epidemic of overdose that it was already building for many years prior.
0: And you mentioned in your study how opioid use can give the impression of control over your life. Uh, uh, when you are when you have a lack of control over your life because of say the shrinking manufacturing sector, and all of a sudden you don't have a job. So, to how can you get that feeling of control over your life? Through opioid use, how can, for instance, you don't have control over your life right now because you lost your job, because you are social distancing, because you are quarantining, how does opioid use within those circumstances give you a sense of control over your life? Yeah. Um.
2: That that comes from uh, a particular theory of addiction that's advanced by Lance Dodes, who's a you know esteemed psychologist, psych, uh, psychiatrist specialist in addiction. Which I'm not. I'm not a specialist in that area. I'm, I'm a labor researcher, like you, like you pointed out. Um, and full disclosure, I've never myself used opioids. I'm not you know experientially familiar with how that might influence one's subjective state, et cetera. Um, but nonetheless, there's you know a lot. In, it goes. It's not just opioids, but it's across a sort of spectrum of drugs and substances. Um, that you know taking a substance that changes your state of mind um does you know it's a way that the individual can alter some uh can use some power to change uh their feeling in the world right it's a, it's a slight you know short-term um uh, act of um uh, reclaiming control um and the theory advanced by the psychiatrist dodes which wasn't applied to you know the economic situation really i tried to sort of bring that in um is basically that addiction is you know habitually doing that is a response to sort of pervasive feelings of powerlessness. When you feel that things you are not in control in your life or um, in your workplace or in your family or in your community, um, um, that you know, people will use their agency to try and regain that control. Right? They're not just going to remain passive, uh, passive victims, um, although they may be a victim uh, in an objective way, Um, But they're going to try and regain it and one way that, you know, they might try to do that is through taking substances. And sometimes they may be self-destructive, right? Um, It may lead to a pattern of dependency. Um, And I was just very, being a labor researcher, you know, knowing about this deterioration of the situation for working people in America over the past 30 years or more, um, wanted to to see if there was a connection, right? Uh, To see if places that saw more fallout, from deindustrialization, from the host of economic changes we sometimes call neoliberalism or post-industrialism or whatever you want to label it as, whether that played some role in driving up uh, uh, the overdose rate. And, you know, based on the quantitative stuff that I've done, I found fairly convincing evidence that it has.
0: You had an article back in twenty eighteen, and at one point you mentioned an opioid user by the name of Teresa, and you say that Teresa was on methadone when we spoke found that heroin helped me do what i've have what i've got to do it gets me through the day if I could afford it. I would still be doing it Last, or well, in November 2019 We spoke with anthropologist Jason Pine Author of The Alchemy of Meth, uh, Decomposition Both Jason and his mother are addicts And Jason told us, when you use it You don't quite feel that you're intoxicated You feel more alert, more capable, more alive In the ways you feel you're expected to be Without realizing you feel that expectation So you fall into line with the imminent demand To be productive, to be useful, to be courageous Social, proactive active, filled with endless energy and entrepreneurialism and ideas and exploratory behavior. In a sense, meth is perfect. other drugs are not as good for syncing up with an everyday demand that just seems right. Did you ever get a sense from those who you talk to that any increased pressure to produce more in today's workplace led to opioid use that work itself, not necessarily a lack of it, might lead to opioid use, addiction and potentially overdose.
2: That's a good question. I, I think in that case, um, so with the, the the paper that you're talking about is an article I wrote for Jacobin a couple of years ago, and that's based on another project that I'm doing uh, in a town called Socket in Rhode Island, it, a deindustrialized town that's you know up against some hard times, and I've been interviewing a lot of people who live there, um, many of whom have struggled with addiction, not all, but it's been a big issue there. Um, and I think t- to some of what you're getting at is a, is a slight difference between the substances. Um, you know, meth is obviously it's it's an upper. It's it, it, you know speeds up your metabolism, makes you awake. Um, and you know, going back before it was, uh, you know, crystal meth as we know it today, but even various forms of amphetamines back in the fifties and and even earlier were used as basically performance enhancers, right. For, for soldiers, for people had to work long shifts for people had to stay awake and like do overnight trucking. Um, and I think in a lot of cases, uh, people get hooked on that type of drug or start using it to, you know, aid to, to, as like a backup when they need to work long shifts, when they need to work hard, when they're bored of their job, but need to keep being productive. My, my experience in talking with folks who struggle with opioid addiction is that it's a bit different. I've not encountered many folks uh, who specifically as a job or performance enhancer. Teresa, that's a pseudonym uh, who spoke to me, was herself in a very, a very precarious situation with an abusive partner who she had since separated from but um, having undergone a lot of uh, health uh, uh, struggles, being a single parent, well, quasi single parent, with an unreliable partner. And for her, um, the use of the turn to opioids was a, a pretty direct way to regain control in a life that was really throwing her curveball after curveball um, uh, of uncontrollable uh, trauma. Um, so, I would say that there, there does seem to be a, a bit of a difference uh, between the two substances that uh, use of opioids often comes from pain that people get from work. And there's noted uh, research showing that um, people in jobs with more injuries, more painful jobs that are more physically demanding, like construction, like restaurant work, surprisingly, um, although that's a very high injury sector, um, have a much higher incidence of uh, uh, opioid prescription use and unfortunately uh, overdose.
0: So the more difficult the work, the more essential the work, the more frontline the work, the more likelihood that you would actually be using opioids. Does, does the gig economy mean more opioid use, not just simply because of the, the more precariousness, the greater precariousness of employment, but also, when you are often in a gig economy, you are self-employed often, and often that work is just being done at your home, isolated. So so even before COVID-19, does that kind of isolation of self-employment within the gig economy, does that promote opioid use?
2: That's a good question. Um, the gig economy broadly has a lot of, uh, people mean a lot of different things when they say it, but I think what, what you mean, Chuck, generally, and what I, you know, what I associate with more broadly, and most of us do, um, is the idea of people just jumping from job to job, being a lot of little sort of short term, maybe part time gigs, right? Um, that may be totally different from one of them. One might be working on a construction crew for a period of time. And then you might be doing some data entry piecemeal uh, through like TaskRabbit or something, and then driving a Lyft or an Uber car for a stretch or doing some of those things, you know, overlapping simultaneously. Um, and in that sense, I would say yes, both the quantitative stuff and the research I've done in Woonsocket with interviews um, seem to bear that out that the more that folks are not in control of their economic lives, that they're just, again, being sort of having to jump from thing to thing to make ends meet um, uh, from job to job, that they don't feel any, uh, or they feel very little sort of self-identity in the work that they do or have very little time to develop that because they're constantly shifting and having to shift. Um, that this can at least it doesn't drive people directly to opioid use or other drug use but it can create the basis of feeling powerless feeling just sort of um you know uh twisting in the wind to forces beyond your control and i think that 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 generates a subjective need to want to regain control somehow and it may not always be through opioids but uh, or other drugs it may be through other activities maybe in a positive sense through trying to organize with other precarious workers to change the situation um, you know, drugs are by no means the only outcome, but there are unfortunately also, uh, at least in a destructive sense, um, a, a common outcome that I think comes from that that situation of, of powerlessness or loss of power.
0: So forgive the simplistic or binary nature of this question, but I think you'll see what I'm trying to get at. Is opioid use then an outcome of mental health issues or an outcome of economic issues? Are people dying from opioid use because they have a mental illness or because our economy causes their suffering. And I realize that that's a binary. I realize that they're not separate. So I think you see where I'm trying to go with this question.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, of course we want to bring that up, right? We want to understand, you know, what uh, what is the mental state of folks who then, you know, go down a path that, that could be very very bad for them, bad for their families, bad for people around them, uh, bad for their health, et cetera. Um, is it, uh, is it you know, the question as I understand it is, is it also just an epidemic of underlying mental health issues? Um, You know, I'm a sociologist, I'm not a psychologist. So I'm not uh, an expert who can explain to you the the, the details of mental health issues and sort of differentiate them out and so on and so forth. But my approach as a sociologist and a critical one at that would be to say that mental health and our day-to-day behaviors, including, but not only drug use are shaped by the social world we live in. And a big part of that is the economic world. Um, It's not the only part. Um, but I would say that mental health itself and addictive behaviors um, or destructive, destructive behaviors are shaped by and the products of the structures that we find ourselves in, whether that's a, a deteriorating infrastructure, whether that's um, a, 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 pol- a increasingly collapsing and um, fragile and volatile political system that doesn't seem to speak to the needs of ordinary people, um, whether that's um uh, uh the loss of opportunities to have a productive or, or uh, organized community-based outlet for those feelings like unionization um, these factors um, they don't determine what every individual does but they sort of shape the parameters for what's on offer to them um, and then individuals make their choices within those within those frameworks so i would i would try and i would say that mental health is itself partially uh, uh, informed by um, the features people find themselves up against
0: poor white rural men who today if they do have a job it's a blue collar non-union job if the opioid abuse and use is the result of deindustrialization does a future of increasing automation mean a future an inevitable future of increased opioid use and death is that the direction that we're continuing down with more automation
2: I'm re- actually reading a really interesting book on that right now. Uh, this guy, Aaron uh, Benanna, ben- ben- I'm probably saying his last name incorrectly, but um, automation in the future of work. It's a short book. He takes up this question. So basically, what is the extent? Not not so much the, the opioid at all, or the subjective effects of this, but you know, how seriously should we judge uh, the trends toward automation and the sort of removal of the human element in work processes? I um, mean, he's a bit skeptical. He says, you know, he, he sort of raises some, like, maybe some of the talk about automation and sort of wholesale. Um, unemployment or disemployment of large sectors is maybe a bit overblown. Um, and some folks will also say that. But I think the, the overall trend, uh, in many sectors at least, uh, is, is fairly clear that there's an increasing rise of automation or a decreasing share of human labor in the processes that are going on. Um, and, you know, in the situation that we're in, in the you know, neoliberal capital formation that is currently dominant in the U.S., um, this has had, and this has been a negative, uh, process for most people, right? It, the, the, the rise of, uh, robots or machines or automated processes that can get work done has actually been bad because it can put you out of work. And then how the hell are you going to get uh, a paycheck? How are you going to pay your rent? How are you going to buy food, etc.? So it then throws people back on their, you know, back on their heels and they have to go searching and they feel powerless and bad things can result. It can create domestic strife. All the whole host of negative things can, can result. Um, But that's not a determined outcome, right? So if we had a different social or uh, political framework, right, that, you know, in theory, that could actually be a good thing, right? We don't have to spend as much time as a society. People don't have to spend as much time doing sort of repetitive, um, uh, um, often um, not so enjoyable um, physical work and could maybe be freed up to do uh, more interpersonal. type of service jobs uh, where they're helping people or they're teaching or they're spending more time with their kids, right? Um, Or doing creative things, right? Um, Unfortunately, that's, those are not usually, it's not usually that kind of a trade-off, but that itself I would say is a a product of our social structure, right? Um, That we could also aim to to try and change to prevent some of the negative outcomes like addiction, like uh, domestic abuse, which are often related unfortunately.
0: If health benefits were not tied to labor here in the U.S., if, say, in a place like the United States, we had universal health care, how far do you think that would go toward undermining demand for opioids or any opioid overdose epidemic?
2: Here's the strange thing, Chuck. Um, actually, it was based on the research that I've done, states that had uh, higher insurance coverage um, uh, pre um, Pre Obamacare or pre Affordable Care Act in 2010 actually had higher rates of addiction and overdose um, because the dynamics of the opioid uh, epidemic have had this. It started out with prescription opioids, right, that are being marketed by uh, by big pharmaceutical companies, right, and they've now some of them have actually uh, pled guilty to the charge of um, you know manipulating and, and uh, underselling the, the risks of their of their products. So we know the role of big pharma. It's not only about big pharma, but um, uh, it actually, and that might have played a, a role in the sort of racial dynamics, at least at the early stage uh, of the addiction crisis. Um, that it was predominantly at the beginnings and early phases, mostly a white, as you pointed out, and more rural or exurban phenomenon, um, and people of color were less affected. That's some of that's changed now, but uh, some of the reasons that have been put forward and that seem to um, bear fruit um, for why that was the case is that white people were more likely to have health insurance. Um, and were more likely to be prescribed these drugs by uh, doctors and medical practitioners, um, which may have been a case of sort of racism, right, less likely to prescribe uh, uh, certain drugs to people of color, having a sort of uh, unintended, uh, at least at the beginning phases, slightly protective effect, at least in terms of exposing people to addiction uh, in communities of color. Uh, now, some of that has, of course, changed. Those racial dynamics have started to shift in the past uh, 10 years, and we're seeing more folks of color, uh, unfortunately, also um, uh, becoming addicted to opioids uh, and and overdosing. Um, but short answer to your question, I mean, I think I think in general, we yes, we need, of course, a, a universal healthcare system that is not tied to your employer, um, and uh, part of that might help find other ways to alleviate chronic pain that's both physical and partially psychologically mediated um, other than um, needing literally an opiate um, to to numb it. Um, There are other healthcare options that could be sought in a more rational, less profit driven framework for healthcare, Um, but in the narrow way that we've experienced here in the US, unfortunately healthcare coverage actually led towards an increased likelihood of opioid use and addiction, at least in the early phases. Um, of the
0: epidemic. That's fascinating. I, I wonder if there's anybody out there who is a person who became an opioid addict or a family member of somebody who became an opioid addict, and they are blaming Obamacare for giving the person easier access to opioids. I, I'm just curious. That, I just wonder if that's something that's going through somebody's head out there. We are speaking with sociologist Peter Eichler, who wrote the study Labor Relations and the Overdose Crisis in the United States. Peter is associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the State University of New York College at Old Westbury, where his work focuses on labor and labor movements, class and inequality, and political economy. Peter was on our show back in September of 2016. We spoke with him about his book, Hard Sell, Work and Resistance in Retail Chains, which is fantastic and you should check out. You can hear that interview by going to thisishell.com and searching on Peter's last name, Eichler, I-K-E-L-E-R. You write that formal employment occupies a central role in most adults' lives, and this primary terrain for experiences of power and powerlessness. Furthermore, the United States and many peer countries have witnessed significant changes in labor relations since the 1970s, service sector growth, skill polarization, and deunionization that largely consist in losses of power for frontline non-professional workers. So if there have been changes in the workplace, why not look to the workplace as a reason for changes in behavior? Why not study how changes in the workplace may impact life outside the workplace? Was there a belief that changes in the workplace had no impact on life outside of the workplace? Was this an intentional project to avoid the connection between labor relations and the life lived outside of work? Why, what led to this kind of belief that you shouldn't be looking at the impacts of work life on life outside of work?
2: I don't think anybody had, at least to my knowledge, any, you know, deliberate intentions to sort of exclude this type of connection. I think, you know, largely, it's just a product of the way academia is, like, divided up. You know, everyone has their research cell, their area, their domain, and, you know, drugs research or addiction research is its own specialized area um, that's very involved. And there's a lot of, you know, studies and technical research in that field. And then there's, in a very different sphere, you know, labor-related or work-related research, um, uh, union-related research, and that sort of plays out in its, its, uh, its other sphere. And then there's many other different, you know, different dimensions and different um, topics that that we're not even even covering here um and you know a lot of people in the labor field which i'm more familiar familiar with have been looking at you know you know what are the effects of precarious work on for example uh work-life balance um how does that impact you know the ability of people to to be parents uh, to be spouses partners etc to be community members how does that impact you know religious behavior so there have been a lot of folks looking at the intersection of work Work processes and other aspects of people's lives, and also, of course, political behavior, political beliefs, and voting behavior, and, and um, affiliation, and so forth. Um, but there just had, and there have been some inklings to say, well, you know, from the drug side of research, well, okay, there are some occupations. Um, there are some. Uh, uh, some folks have done some interesting research looking at, you know, with opioid overdose death actually as the predictor for Trump voting. Uh, or Trump's sympathies in the 2016 election, and they actually found a positive correlation there. But, you know, from my reading of it, there hadn't been there hadn't been this direct connection or very much of it at all of trying to, to just answer the question, does this explosion of uh, overdose death, is that in some systematic way connected with um, changes in uh, uh, the macroeconomy of states? So that's what I did in this paper. I looked at states in, as the units plus DC, which, you know, kind of should be a state, so 51 cases, over a long stretch of time. Um, it's going back to the early 80s uh, uh, for, the, for the economic measures. And what I find is that states that lost a greater share of manufacturing jobs, and states that had steeper union decline, measured as a percent of all workers who were in unions, and states that had lower self-employment uh, um, in the same period as the over overdose uh, rise, those states had worse rises in overdose death. So these three factors, de-unionization, de-industrialization, and low self-employment contribute in a significant way, even net of other important factors like healthcare coverage, like uh, racial percentages, like population size, et cetera. Those three factors explain almost 40% of the rise in overdose death rates across states. Um, so it, for me, it was just trying to sort of link two different fields of research that I had sort of I don't want to say stumbled on, but encountered unintentionally by the research that I've been doing in Woonsocket, where I went to interview people um, who are, you know, working class in a working class deindustrialized town, and I was wanted to talk about unions and changes in the economy and politics, and in interview after interview, everybody kept bringing up drugs. Uh, they kept talking about their experiences with addiction, their, their overdose, and how they were revived, or their cousin, or their, their spouse, or et cetera. Uh, It just became such a common theme that I sort of took a step back and said, wow, I have to I have to read up on this drug stuff and try to try to make sense of it, because this is a major feature of of these folks lives, um, which, broadly speaking, I think is indicative of at least a large section of the working class in America today.
0: And you write that state level deindustrialization from 1983 to 2017 and low self-employment between 2017, are found to robustly predict increased overdose death between 1999 and 2017. Does the expansion of large corporations, chains replacing neighborhood businesses, a decrease in small family-owned mom-and-pop operations contribute to a loss of a sense of control over your own life and an increased likelihood of opioid use? To what extent can locally-owned businesses insulate a community from an opioid epidemic?
2: I mean, some of the data that I looked at, you know, kind of supports that in, uh, actually directly, right? So to the, to the greater extent, I mean, it depends on the chains you're talking about, right? Some chains are franchises, so technically they do have local independent owners, quasi-owners, but they don't have as much control as they would if it was just their own restaurant, for example, or their own store. Um, and some don't, right? Some are just chains that are corporately owned, right? There's no local franchise, um, but I think broadly, uh, the trend that you're pointing out, um, which has been in my previous work, I looked at or I had to read up a, a lot about the Walmart factor, right? Walmart coming into a, towns across the country and putting the local places out of business. And that actually happened, by the way, in Woonsocket, the town that I've been spending a lot of time in the past five years. Um, you know, that once had a very, very vibrant downtown with a lot of independent mom, mom and pop stores and a very sort of uh, distinctive local culture that was, you know, largely French Canadian. Um, and uh, it had suffered a number of changes and, and, and blows economically. But one part of that was uh, a Walmart that came into town and contributed to the deterioration of its downtown stores, right? People not shopping there anymore, not spending the money there, many of them going out of business. And then a few years later, the Walmart itself left because it didn't get the, the deal or it didn't get an extension of its uh, uh, tax rebates from the local government that it wanted. So it decided to move to basically tear down its store and move to the next town. Across um, and uh, this that's in the sort of micro sense. If we if we pan back out to the big picture, the sort of U.S. Uh, uh, wide picture that I look at in the in the uh, numbers piece, um, I think it bears that out, right? So less self employment that that usually is correlated with uh, fewer opportunities um, for people to sort of run their own run their own small business um, is itself connected to higher overdose death rates. Um, Because when you're self-employed, right, that's another way of having more power, right? Just like having a union in your wage job is a way of having more power. You have more say in what goes on. Um, Now, there are also, of course, as you pointed out with the gig economy thing, disguised forms of, I mean, self-employment that's really just disguised wage labor, right? And there's a huge battle about that going on in California with uh, Uber and Lyft drivers. um, That You know, they're they're legally counted as self-employed, but their actual conditions are more like wage workers, um, and they should actually be treated and get the benefits as such. Um, but broadly speaking, in the classic sense, uh, self-employment does seem to grant most uh, people who do it um, more freedom or autonomy in their daily working lives and does seem uh, in the big picture to be preventative, at least, of uh, addiction and overdose.
0: You write about the unifying experience of work, once central to the formation of union consciousness, was broken, if not absent entirely in these communities. What can uh, I was going to ask you what we can replace this unifying experience of work with? But more importantly, I guess my bigger question is Has that unifying experience of work been replaced with the culture of opioid use? You mentioned in your Jacobin article from 2018, as Kevin, a 29 year old former convict and meat packer, explained it, a few of my friends pass away this year because of the dope. Everybody is doing it. Everybody. It's the culture. So has the opioid epidemic become so big, it has become a culture that even potentially, you know, replaces the unifying experience of work, especially within the manufacturing sector.
2: I, I would be, I can make that argument. I make that, that I would put that forward as, um, you know, a speculative idea to be tested, specifically in that town, Woonsocket, uh, that I've been studying. Um, and that's where that, that interview came from. Um, you know, it was a town that once was overwhelmingly, it was like 80% textile workers in its heyday and mostly woolen textile workers, which has its own special dynamics, a little bit different from cotton, but that's maybe too in the weeds. Um, it was, you know, it was the dominantly French-Canadian textile worker town with a very vibrant union movement um, that, you know, uh, drastically raised raised wages um, and, you know, had a whole social program and, you know, it was really a, a beacon city for, for a period of time in the mid-20th century. And then it was rapidly and then sort of more slow rapidly cut off and slowly sort of bled out from that um, um, that peak in the 50s 60s 70s as textile companies you know move shop first to the south and then later overseas um, and a few manufacturing industries you know kind of replaced it, a little bit of electronics manufacturing here and there but those are also trickled away um, and uh, what I found in that town you know based on interviews like that with Kevin again it's not his real name uh, and other folks, uh, is that um, the most unifying daily experience, yeah, people worked, the the average, you know, unemployment, official unemployment rate there is only a little bit higher than the nation as a whole. So even folks who are going through a bout of unemployment will then get a, a formal or informal job and move from, from um, wage work to wage work. But it's not unifying in the way that it once was that led towards a massive union up, uh, upsurge in that town before, right? It's not in these stable uh, places where you can build solidarity with your coworkers. It's in Um, this small outfit, or it's in driving that Uber car, which is usually often not even with their own car. It's a rental company that's basically farming out their rental cars uh, to various uh, Uber and Lyft drivers. Um, And and myriad other jobs uh, that are just very haphazard and very disconnected uh, from one to the other. So it doesn't give people the chance to build solidarity, friendships, alliances, uh, um, and and self-identity in the work that they do um, to nearly the same extent as before. So, what has replaced that? And um, what I found in that particular town is, at least through the 80 odd interviews I've done so far, uh, is that one of the most unifying things, other than work, which is no longer so unifying, is drug culture, right? Doing drugs, selling drugs, um, uh, also recovery. Many people who are trying to overcome addiction and many of them succeeding, um, uh, that has also become a sort of unifying place to put your energy and your identity into. And for this particular town, Woonsocket, uh, opioids unfortunately were just sort of the latest episode of a long series of, um, you know, uh, deleterious drug problems. And I just want to make it clear, I'm not like someone. I'm not like some teetotaler here who's saying like all drugs are bad, hugs not drugs, etc. Um, you know, uh, but some can have very deleterious consequences, and unfortunately, opioids are more likely to do that. You're more likely to die of an overdose from opioids than even many other substances. Um, So um, just trying to be a realist about that. Um, But yeah, in that particular town, there had been a long series of uh, addiction epidemics, crack epidemic, um, uh, meth, and various other things floating around. um, And opioids had just become sort of the latest episode um, that had sort of fit into that, um, uh, that framework.
0: You were mentioning the unifying idea of the culture of recovery. I, I get a small town newspaper from northern Michigan and in there, it's a weekly newspaper, and in their calendar of events, it's always just filled with Alcohol Anonymous meetings and Narcanon meetings and all these kinds of recovery meetings. And I just thought it was, well, the community newspapers, that's the only thing that they're getting sent to them. But then it's like that every week and it's been like that every week for several years now. And so I was talking about how there's the centrality of the culture of recovery within this small town. And you write that the West Virginia teacher strike is instructive. In 2016, West Virginia was by far worst hit by the opioid crisis. It also experienced one of the steepest declines in union density since the early 1980s, a sharp contrast to its long tradition of mine worker unionism. Yet in February 2018, teachers across the state launched one of the most successful mass strikes in recent history. Some like one South Charleston high school teacher directly referenced the degradation of addiction. We're feeling a cumulative effect of West Virginia's bad economy, all the economic desperation in the state, the opioid crisis, kids bring that with them into the classroom. There's a feeling that the whole state is ready for a strike. So is opioid addiction that leads to recovery programs leading to greater political activism in rural areas of the United States? And might we even, while you are attributing potentially the West Virginia teacher strike, something that people would see from a, you know, a good thing from a leftist perspective, might we even attribute Trump's supporters and rallies with a response to opioid use?
2: There's a a lot to untangle there. And and I want to thank you for bringing that up, Chuck. Um, So... Let me think about about how to respond to this. Um, I, I don't think I think what I say in the in the Jacobin piece is that um, the energy and a sort of uh, moral commitment people are putting into recovery, uh, in many senses, um, is maybe an underrecognized area for political proto political engagement. Right? It's a place where people are coming together collectively, trying to solve problems, trying to retake control over something that's got control of them. Um, and you know, maybe there are some some interesting inroads that, for example, union organizers or political organizers could learn from or could at least try to sort of tap into that same sort of communal moral uh, energy. And of course, as the same psychiatrist that I, I look to for a theory of addiction points out in another book, there are also some some big drawbacks to the sort of mainstream 12 steps uh, AANA uh, program. So I don't, I'm not going to go into that whole, all that right now, but you know, um, we also need to be critical of that or at least have a, have a critical eye towards what those programs are and how they're structured. Um, I, I I wouldn't, I don't have any evidence, I haven't seen anything to indicate that, you know, recovery programs themselves are, are driving support for right-wing populism or Trump's, you know, pro-fascist hordes, mobs, etc. There is some research by Goodwin and colleagues that does find a quantitative, you know, a correlation between uh, overdose death rates and prescription rates and, Trump voting or support for Trump uh, in the 2016 election. But that's only at the very aggregate level. So my hunch, and it's only a hunch, um, is that it's not so much people themselves who are addicted, who are being drawn towards Trump uh, or that brand of frankly racist uh, proto-fascism, but rather that it's some of these sort of relatively well-off or at least stable Social layers in those same communities that are being ravaged by addiction and ravaged by deindustrialization and just generally forgotten in the uh, you know um, 21st century economy and, and structure that we're living in, that it's many of those sort of more stable, more well-off elements, um, which the numbers also back up, that are being drawn towards support for Trump. So I think my, my hypothesis would be that it's a less direct, it's a connection, but a less direct connection that communities being that are suffering the fallout from these these um, twin processes um, are seeing a move towards right-wing populism among certain more stable layers, um, um, you know, themselves, perhaps small, uh, self-employed folks, or, uh, lower layers of managerial, um, uh, supervisors, uh, um, and so on and so forth, um, who are, uh, being drawn towards, you know, Trump's brand of, uh, denialism and, and retribution.
0: We have been speaking with sociologist Peter Eichler, who wrote the study Labor Relations and the Overdose Crisis in the United States. Peter was on our show back in September of 2016, almost five years ago, when we spoke with him about his book, Hard Sell, Work and Resistance in Retail Chains. And you can hear that interview by going to thisishell.com and searching on Peter's last name, Eichler, I K E. L-E-R, and I promise you, Peter, it will be less than four and a half years from now when we have you back on the show because I really enjoyed our conversation back in 2016, and I've really enjoyed our conversation today. But as you may or may not remember, our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. And again, I think our audience might hate your response to this question because... A lot of people have been asking me this question, a lot of people who are anarchists, a lot of people who are socialists, a lot of people who are on the left, a lot of people who are working within social movements here in Chicago. They're all talking about mutual aid and how they can come up with more and more mutual aid for people during the COVID-19 to be a parallel source for social services when the government falls short. Peter, to what extent is recovery leftist mutual aid
2: recovery from addiction um, good question it's not I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's leftist per se but it has it, you know it's usually pretty apolitical um you know addiction recovery support groups um, and programs and so forth um, but there's potential in it I think I mean I think there's there's a there are some good aspects of people coming together, like you said, mutual aid, trying to help each other to overcome a common problem or even individual problems that other people have already overcome. Um, that has a lot of elements of what, you know, I think the left is trying to do or elements of it are trying to do. And I just also want to give a shout out to Chicago because I know there's some great things happening there um, in terms of, uh, you know, the CTU, the teachers union um, and uh, that the DSA uh, uh, district branch there is doing some really uh, admirable work um, so to us around the country, even here in New York, um, we're, we're very, we look to Chicago a lot, um, uh, and feel a lot, of, a lot of, solidarity with our brothers and sisters there, um, for, for what's going on. And I think, especially in these times, when we've got a really growing right-wing threat, when we have an unprecedented pandemic, um, when we have, uh, you know, an economy that's again in shambles, uh, only slightly more than a decade after the last fallout. Um, uh, and we've got this ongoing and growing, uh, overdose crisis, um, I, I I don't have any you know clearly worked out framework for this but I think we need to work as much as we can to co- find ways to come together to help each other out to defend democ- democracy um, uh, and also to fight for a more transformative world uh, that can prevent these things from happening in the first place right that can make deindustrialization even if it does happen not a not a negative thing but a positive outcome that can free people up to do more creative uh, socially connected work uh, uh, rather than it being um, a hellish outcome that Um, you know, induces poverty and and problems.
0: Peter, thank you so much for being on our show today. Sociologist Peter Eichler wrote the study, Labor Relations and the Overdose Crisis in the United States. We have it linked at our website. Thank you so much for being back on our show. And I promise you'll be on our show before, let's see, that would be sometime in 2025. I promise it's going to (laughs) be before then. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much. And happy new year. Happy new year to you too, Peter. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is Helen. If you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast. Our Patreon podcast airs live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash this is how become a subscriber and get tomorrow's Patreon podcast which features an interview that we did back in January of 2011. Almost 10 years ago to the day with Richard Wolf, Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Massachusetts. Richard had just completed his book Capitalism Hits the Fan The Global Epidemic or Economic Meltdown and What to Do about it. And he had just written the columns at The Guardian, Bonuses for Bankers, Bankruptcy for Public Services, The Myth of American Exceptionalism, Implodes, and 2011, Calling Time on Capitalism. So why are we sharing that interview this week? Because we thought we'd show you where the critique of capitalism was 10 years ago and how it has changed. And sadly how it is not. Meanwhile, I'll be talking about yesterday about what happened in DC at the Capitol Building, but more importantly, the insanity of the establishment of media news coverage of yesterday's events because when I got home from the show yesterday, I turned on the cable news outlets and I could not turn them off until I couldn't take it anymore and was able to join to enjoy, I should say, the respite of multiple BattleBot matches Well Stoned off my ass But you can only hear Our 10 year old interview With Richard Wolf, Which reveals The more things change The more they stay the same And my ripping apart Of cable news By becoming a Patreon subscriber At patreon.com Slash thisishell Thanks to our newest Subscribers on Patreon Thanks to Martin Janice Mike C Will David Ali Ricky Mark Ed And Julie and uh, Alex, this week's question from Hell is: How should we commemorate Chuck's 25 years of radio service? Do you want to give us some of the answers now, or do you just want to go to Jeff?
1: Yeah, I got a bunch, so let's do half now, half half for Jeff. Okay. All right. So, what do you get? How should we celebrate uh, Chuck's 25 years of radio service? Mark A says party at Chuck E. Cheese. Oh, God, <laughs> kill him. Uh, Matt H says slapping hands and cracking cans. Uh, Tynan S says 25 percent of his student loans forgiven. David S. says, do what the corporate media does regarding the major issues of our time, their underlying causes, and potential solutions. Ignore it. Christy says, a gold clock set at one minute to midnight. That's really good. <laughs> and then uh, Jason B says, have a satanic temple priest bless Chuck for all his toils so far.
0: I'm definitely not going to a Chuck E. Cheese. That's got to be a super spreader. going on. They're probably not open anymore. Anyway, uh, you got to have your answers in by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Torch in the Moment of Truth, which com- is coming up next during this week's Moment of Truth. Jeff tells us, uh, looks in the mouth of, uh, what is it, tells how we'll, know, I don't know.
1: Looks at like the mouth of a war horse. There
0: you go. I got the wrong thing clipped in here. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. I know you have half a on the line. One, two, you know.
3: War is a bullshit job. Welcome to the moment of truth. The thirst that is also, paradoxically, the drink. On the one hand, you have the ancient traditions of hospitality. You are obligated by universally agreed upon human law to invite a stranger into your tent and feed them. Allow them to rest. If they require it, to spend the night. Maybe two, maybe more. After all, the desert can be a dangerous place. Those struggling through the unwelcoming wasteland must be offered respite, and you must give it to them in whatever measure you have the means to provide. They might be angels, so you should offer your virgin offspring to them so they'll remember to spare you when it's time for fire and brimstone. On the other hand, you have Greeks dumping refugees they view as potentially unendurable burdens into the Mediterranean to bob until they die of exposure or drowning or shark attack. The party Greeks had voted in to extricate their country from the crushing European Union debt turned out, in the end, not to be up to the task. Hence the continued imposition of austerity. Hence the feeling of poverty imposed from above. Hence the fear of strangers and their needs. Poverty imposed from above always seems to be a good reason for those below to attack anyone perceived as being even lower than them. You have the Beverly Hillbillies saying... Y'all come back now, you hear? And you have Oscar the Grouch telling you to get away from his trash can. The South African Nobel Prize winning writer J.M. Coetzee published a novel about 40 years ago called Waiting for the Barbarians. He's written many books since then, and this one is probably not his best, but it may be his most famous and easiest to read because stylistically it resembles the outline of a Camus novel, although with an even more allegorical feel. I read his Life and Times of Michael Kay, which was published three years later, and then Age of Iron when it came out in 1990. I appreciated those more than Barbarians. He's an excellent writer, J.M. Katsia. The Booker Prize he also won. They don't give them Nobels and Bookers to no slouches. Politically, he was against apartheid, though never committed to the left in an organizational sense. The perspectives it's possible to glean from his work are complicated and humanistically moral, and even somewhat universalist. After apartheid, he might have been called a centrist, if labeling him were ever necessary. He conveys an oddly depressing, yet worthwhile flavor of the human experience, which is about the best thing. I find myself able to commit to saying about him. Waiting for the Barbarians takes place in a colonial outpost of the empire. What outpost, where, when, and of what empire isn't specified, but it's a non-Western colony of a European-seeming empire, a far-flung colony sometime in the 17th to the mid-18th century. I recently noticed they'd made a film of it, It came out in 2019, the year before the year that wouldn't end. Katsia himself wrote the screenplay, and for a novelist, he did a damn good job. The big stars are Mark Rylance, who's so hot right now, and Robert Pattinson, who's so hot right now, and Johnny Depp, who, well, he turns in a sober performance, looking severe and speaking with gravity and wearing an early version of stylish sunglasses. Design-wise, wardrobe-wise, and casting-wise, I was curious how they were going to maintain the lack of specificity of setting. I'll tell you this, there were no black people in the cast, the colonizers were white, and everyone else looked to run the ethnic spectrum in dress and phenotype from Afghani to Pakistani to Nepali to Mongolian. The story is a kind of parable. Mark Rylance is the magistrate. He's a nice ruler of his outpost. He tries to be kind by stopping his soldiers from treating the natives roughly or unjustly. He tries to adjudicate disagreements between natives fairly. He can't read or speak the language, but he collects old native writings. They are in a script that predates the current native alphabet, I think. He stores them lovingly in cases in his library of documents. The friendly outpost the purpose of which is unclear, is paid a visit by Johnny Depp in his glasses. He's an officious taciturn officer of the police, Colonel Joll, who is anything but Jolly. Johnny Depp is sure the natives, whom he refers to as barbarians, are up to no good. Soon enough he captures a couple of them, tortures one to death, and tortures a confession out of the other one, a confession that the barbarians beyond the outpost are indeed up to no good. Despite Rylance's insistence that the barbarians are just peaceful herdsfolk minding their own business, Depp takes it upon himself to capture more of them, torture and imprison them, until at last he's created the very conflict he'd been predicting. He leaves for the Empire's capital, and returns with enough troops to achieve the battling and conquering his invented project requires. Meanwhile, Rylance is fumblingly trying to navigate an aimless relationship of pity and exotic fascination with a barbarian former prisoner. Eventually, Robert Pattinson shows up to bully and humiliate Rylance. During trials and tortures, Rylance's ineffectual humanism is shown up for the weakness and self-absorption that it is, while the natives he once extended awkward kindness toward have been twisted by Pattinson's troops into a petty, cowardly, cruel rabble. As a parable of imperialism and colonialism, It paints a template-like picture that can be imposed on many situations, such as the French and U.S. involvement in Indochina, the British and Portuguese in India, the English, Dutch, and assorted white trash in Africa. The aspect I felt myself focusing on most keenly wasn't the complex ambiguity of violence, nor the methodical malice of Depp, nor the impatiently cruel Pattinson. It was the self-fulfilling prophecy of Trouble with the Natives. It made me think about how many of the conflicts the U.S. has been involved in that were either repercussions of uh, earlier colonial crimes or invented or purposely stirred up antagonisms. And that led me to reflect on David Graeber, who passed away last year, and his concept of bullshit jobs. Jobs that accomplish nothing practical but keeping the economy in apparent motion. And of course, this isn't an original thought of mine, but it really sank in how much of a bullshit job being a soldier is, even a general. Some kind of realist takes it upon himself to know that a conflict with some other population is inevitable and makes sure that that inevitability comes to pass. This creates numerous jobs in the destruction industry, which is all war is. The shock doctrine is that disasters must be seized upon and capitalized on, and war is simply the creation of disaster. And everyone involved in that project is doing nothing more than destroying people, animals, the environment, structures, artificial, natural, material, and conceptual. All that destruction requires destruction engines, weapons. So the making of weapons is part of the bullshit destruction industry, as is the use of weapons. And naturally, after the destruction comes the rebuilding, but in our circle of BS, building is only done to create that which is to be destroyed at a later date. I don't know if this is still true, but on the back of some baking soda boxes were diagrams of the many uses of baking soda. One is to put it in the fridge to absorb food orders that wander around invading the peaceful Tupperware, and another is to brush your teeth with it and still, another use is to pour the entire box down the toilet. Buy our product, flush the entire thing down the toilet, and buy more. It's a capitalist dream, a capitalist wet dream. And that's our economic system, built around war. Make it, box it, sell it, buy it, flush it, and start all over again. But, to paraphrase Margaret Thatcher, The problem with capitalism is that eventually you run out of world to destroy. There aren't the vast number of fresh countries around to pull that imperialistic, self-fulfilling destruction prophecy on anymore. Luckily there's always a way to stir up anger among one oppressed group and to get them to do bullshit destruction on another, either migrating in as refugees or already within as minorities. It's a very popular phase, nationalistic, xenophobic, astroturf populism. It's so hot right now. It's even better than regular war. Because you don't have to pay the soldiers. They do their destruction for free. A nationalist movement is like an army of unpaid war internships. The troops even pay for their own uniforms and weapons with their own money. You can even sell them hats! On the other hand, there's hospitality. It's the opposite of war and xenophobic violence, but that will have to wait till next week. Till then, this has been the moment of truth. Good day.
0: Happy New Year, Jeffy.
3: Happy New Year, Chuck. Hey, Chuck, those horns on uh, Look at Them Beans. Yeah. Those are the angels. Excuse me? Those are the angels' horns. They love the beans.
0: Oh, Jeffy. And the angels are not the tower of power, is that what you're saying?
3: I I have no idea. All right. I didn't get into that much detail in my theology.
0: <laughs> all right, Jeffy. Until Happy next week. Happy
3: New Year week. to you. Happy New Year to Alex. Happy New Year to you all. I'm going to I really miss Daphne.
0: Yeah, me too. She's going to be back in February. All right, Jeffy, we're up against the clock. Okay. Stay beautiful. Live from land stolen from the Pottawatomi people, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, do we have any more responses to this week's question from Hell, which is, how should we commemorate my 25 years of radio service?
1: Oh, yeah, we got a bunch. Uh, via Twitter, DM, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Bong hits for the people, says Greg G. <laughs> uh, congrats, Chuck. On air, uh, tw- top 25 books slash top 25 guests would be very fun. Hmm. Off air? 25 beers slash edibles. That's from the Joker calculator. Todd J says, with the first silver subversive award. Marks Price says, by storming the Capitol, of course. <laughs> Who's that? That was a Marks Price. <laughs> right. uh, Christian C, past guest, or uh, Christian S, uh, past guest, Christian Sorensen says, vacation. Chuck, Alex, Nick Cage, and Vanessa Marseille, Fort Walton, Kansas. <laughs> that sounds like fun. Insane. Uh <laughs> Make him sit on a chair, we carry the chair, carry Chuck into the Capitol building. <laughs> Jakey. <laughs> Our old friend Eat Farts, 69, says, with lots and lots of weed. <laughs> kind of on brand there, Chuck. Hypocrite uh, Reader, who actually, I think Hypocrite Reader has a new issue coming out in a couple weeks, so I'm really excited about that. Uh, they wrote, with a little bit of purgatory as a treat. <laughs> How should we uh, commemorate Chuck's 25 years of radio service? Occult FTN says, giving Chuck 25 reasons why this is still hell. <laughs> And Bogan Anarchist says, uh, fly him to COVID-free Aotara slash New Zealand, get him some free health and let him roll with my Bogan Anarchist crew to help him get over his neo-Marxist tendencies. <laughs> I think you got the wrong person working on the show with the neo-Marxist <laughs> tendencies there, but uh, that was a Bogan Anarchist. <laughs> Anybody else? Uh, F5ing...
0: That's it. And So JP, that was a really great answer about carrying me in on a chair into a state into the Capitol. I like that one. I also liked uh, Mark Price saying storming the Capitol. Those were uh, very timely. And uh, as Alex was saying earlier T saying uh, Giving me a gold watch, watch set to one second Before midnight or one minute before midnight Whatever it was, that was really good I also like David saying Do what the corporate media does Regarding the major issues of our time their underlying causes and potential solutions Ignore it John saying a silver uh, commemoration trophy Dedicated to the handsome silver tug devil Who puts the Mertz in megahertz I just like the phrase Putting Mertz in megahertz Braden, a full page announcement In the Houghton Lake Resort Order that would be a fantastic way To commemorate 25 years of doing this Is hell and I believe that would cost $7.22 So we might be doing that Garrett saying a crowdfunded bionic Spine so that he'll both No longer experience back pain while simultaneously Helping advance humanity toward A more cyberpunkish future and Adam Saying we could totally create a virtual Army of this is hell fanboys who Ritually get on the internet and complain About how it was better in the 90s and accuse Chuck of being a Social justice warrior whenever he's seeks out women's perspectives for interviews. Adam, that was really spot on. But I'm going to go with... uh...
1: Oh, sorry. Uh, Andrew T. snuck in there. uh, Just at the last minute, I just have fived with Storm the Capitol.
0: (laughs) Again, Storm the Capitol. I'm going to go with David. I really like David's response of saying, uh, to commemorate 25 years of doing this is hell, David says, do what the corporate media does regarding the major issues of our time, their underlying causes and potential solutions. Ignore it, because I really do like that idea of just ignoring my 25th anniversary. <laughs> you have won, David, your choice of our merchandise at hell.com when you click on support. Congratulations. Now all you have to do is send us which piece of merchandise that you would like to get and tell us what your mailing address is, and we'll have it in the mail for you as soon as possible. My answer to this week's question from Hell... How should I commemorate 25 years of radio service? I've been commemorating my 25 years the same way. I'm I'm going to be commemorating my 25 years the same way I've been commemorating each day of those past 25 years with chronic stomach and back pain, bouts of depression, recurring vertigo, mounting debt, and 25 years of being canceled by corporate culture. So... It's gonna be a party Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers To this week's question from hell Special thanks to everyone who joined us on Patreon And showed their support by going to thisishell.com And clicking on support This week's hangover cure is The hangover cure used by the late chef, author And travel TV show host Anthony Bourdain Some aspirin, a coke, a joint, and eat Szechuan food Thanks to all this week's guests Including historian Gerald Horn Author of The Bittersweet Science, Racism Racketeering in the Political Economy of Box which was a fantastic conversation Thanks to yesterday's guest Sociologist Mimi Scheller Author of Island Futures Caribbean Survival and the Anthropocene Again, all three of the interviews this week All three of the guests this week Were really fantastic Especially as well as today, uh, today's guest Sociologist Peter Eichler Who wrote the study Labor Relations and the Overdose Crisis in the United States Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon When we're going to be sharing our interview from 2011 With the economist Richard Wolff And how... Criticism of capitalism has changed And how much it has unfortunately Stayed the same and I'll be giving my media Analysis of just what the hell happened yesterday After President Trump incited a mob To go storm the state The Capitol building during the electoral vote Account yes it's a lot of, I told you so, because all summer I was saying this is what exactly what was going to happen. I think I dated it back to June 23rd when I was saying it on a weekly basis, if not two or three times a week, that this was what, what was going to happen. That there would inevitably be more violence in the siege of the Michigan State Capitol was merely a dry run for bigger things to come. But you can only hear that by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash hell There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid.